0: Hello, welcome to In The Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham, where I speak to an eclectic mix of interesting and successful people to find out what really makes them tick. Now, my guest this week is Sir Clive Woodward. Now, if I was to ask you what you know about Clive Woodward, you'd probably say, well, he's that bloke that coached the Rugby World Cup winning side of 2003. And you would be right. But is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this accomplished man because he's also worked with and for sailing, the Olympics, football and Formula One. His family are the center of his world and yet his own childhood was pretty tricky, something that he's never been able to forgive his parents for. Hear his thoughts on the Football World Cup, Eddie Jones and the Tour of South Africa and why a full-time job offer from Ron Dennis Was just a whisker away from becoming a reality ladies and gentlemen sir clive woodward as you've never heard him before i'm gonna level with the listeners who don't already know but this is our take two (laughs) and the reason it's our take two is because i'm a newbie to this and i clearly hadn't got quite a grasp of the technology but you being the lovely man that you are let me come back so thank you for that
1: never in doubt
0: I mean, actually, I see this as an opportunity because you made some really interesting points first time round. (laughs) You won't remember what any of them are.
1: (laughs) I always thought the technology looked a bit bit complex (laughs) for you, Natalie. So anyway, I'm glad to see you again.
0: Uh, But I also see it as an opportunity for us to sort of develop some of the points that we talked about first time round, um, if we can remember any of them. Um, But if I may uh, just get you to cast your mind back and start at the beginning... Because I think what a lot of people are interested to know is kind of what makes you who you are and what makes you tick, and a lot of that does come from childhood so so what was your childhood like
1: Oh well, my childhood was i uh, i got happy memories of my childhood uh, I came from a service uh, family my my dad was a, a pilot in the in the air force which meant we kind of moved around um various air force bases mainly in the u k um and probably the, the best and the happiest time was a place called R.E.F. Linton-on-Ouse, which is just outside York. Um, that was my first school. I went to Easingwell Grammar School. Um, and that's where I really started playing football, soccer, yeah, seriously. So I remember as a sort of a child being on an Air Force base. You know, that was very different from today's kind of childhood. It was all totally sort of, uh, secure. And, just, and I just played football all the time and went to Easingwell Grammar School and had a, had a great time.
0: And football being your first love, you you prefer to play that over rugby. Well,
1: yeah, I never played rugby club. I was fourteen. I mean, I was uh, I was just brought up on football. I can clearly remember now in you know nineteen sixty six, I was ten years old watching the, the World Cup final with, with my dad, you know. And then I can clearly remember even all those years ago, a ten year old, going out on the streets and everyone just came out of the house screaming and shouting when you know England won the World Cup and Bobby Moore lifting the trophy and Geoff Hurst hat track. I can name the. England team today that played that day. So yeah, football was my absolute passion, my absolute love, and I was you know I was a good good player, and I can say that I think modestly. I was, I loved it. I was you know my whole life was going to be playing football. That was basically what I had. All my dreams were about football.
0: So, so you actually wanted and expected to play professional football. Well, at that
1: stage, I was. I mean, I was I was, I was like twelve, thirteen. I'm playing for Yorkshire under 15s so i I'm getting picked wherever my age group. You know. We already had scouts from uh, it was from Leeds um, coming to the school to talk to the headmaster. And that's where it all kind of either went badly wrong or badly right for me because um, the, the headmaster um, literally went to see my dad one, one evening and, and said, you know, we've got real problems with your child because, you know, he's... he's uh, I'm going to say problems. He said, you know, academically he could go to university. And even even those days, going to university was something... He didn't do that was just for other people. university was this real it's a higher echelon, and he basically said to my dad your 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 child's uh, bright enough to go to university, but all he did is play football and i was all he did was play football he said he's not working at school all this stuff so so to got long story short, my dad decided to take me away from football and send me away to this uh, boarding school uh, because he's in the services he was a he was a, 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 a pilot he could send me to any military boarding school and the air force, air force paid for it. So I went to this place called HMS Conway. So at 13 I'm kind of taken away from Easingwold Grammar School which I loved when my dad was based to end up in this place called HMS Conway which is this merchant navy boarding school on Anglesey in North Wales. So I was literally sent there at 13, you know, and they they played three sports, you know, rugby, rugby and rugby. You there was no other sport there. That was their whole passion. They absolutely hated football. Football was something that if you were seen with the football it was going to cause massive problems and so I'm suddenly went from being totally to play this game of rugby, which I'd never even seen a rugby ball in my life before. So suddenly I'm at school at 13, boarding school, tough, kind imagine it, boys, merchant navy boarding school, where you didn't send your kids there if they're good at sport. You went there because they're going to go in the merchant navy, <laughs> and that was the last thing that was suited my kind of sporting ability and my and my kind of background. So it was one of those crazy decisions that, and I kind of really, even at an early age, really kind of. Never made it up with my parents ever after that because it was, it, and there was lots of stuff went on, but didn't like the school very much, ran away various times, but just kept getting sent back and sent back and ended up being there from 13 to 18 and ended up playing rugby because there was nothing else to do because I kept getting sent back to school.
0: That's kind of heartbreaking though because you were effectively being punished for your passion.
1: Well, it was just a case of, uh, I, I guess I can see it, you know, because how things have turned out, you end up going to university, you end up playing for England, end up coaching England and doing all this stuff so my parents if they're both dead now but if they're both alive they'd sit here and say well we were right look what happened but deep down I'm going no you weren't right because you never know what was what was right and wrong but I think to take something away from somebody um, they're doing it for the right reasons like my, my dad in those days he, he just could not see um, he had no even ambition for me to professional football he didn't see that was part of the offer people people from our kind of family didn't go into being professional footballers, but I was good. I was def, be, definitely better at playing football. Than I was at playing rugby, and um, you know that's what happened. That's when I got into rugby. It's as simple as that.
0: Well, given that you got twenty one caps in rugby, just think how many you could have got in football.
1: Well, it's just one of the games. Like, that's why I love football. I've got you know you look back and you kind of eventually move on, but you know I, you know people. You know, I went into football. I Had one year in football after I left the England job, but I generally do love football and I love everything about it. And it, it's amazing when you speak to rugby people. they they talk about diving, and it's a soft game. It's not a soft game. Football is a tough, tough game. You know, I love people like Graham Souness and Roy Keane and these, you know, Nicky Button, these sort of players I kind of really relate to. I think, you know, these are tough guys. If they're rugby players, they'd be superb. But in football, you know, they're just no-nonsense players. But football's a tough, tough game. It's a very tough professional sport. and I don't think anyone from the rugby world, I was lucky enough to work in it for for a while, and he just, is everything I... I knew it but be, I loved it, it was fantastic and it was a very competitive sport and it's a tough, tough sport, make, make no bones about that.
0: You're going to have to explain who that is for the listeners. That's
1: uh, Sally, my dog, who's just seen some food on the table, so we've got Sally and we've got Ronnie Barker, the Norfolk Terrier, sitting next to us, so I think we're about to get some noise in the background, <laughs>
0: Sally looks like she wants a bit of the cheese on the table.
1: Cheese. If we give her any there'll be non-stop barking. So we've got to not give her any food okay. at the table. Okay. I normally would, but I know she'll just come go crazy if I do.
0: So, so how much of your sort of footballing talent do you think you you took into your style of playing rugby and and really kind of, in a way, they're the players that have always caught your eyes through over the years that had that kind of footballing talent. I, it's always it always
1: I'd always spotted that the, the and I probably first saw on the, on the Lions tour and playing for England that some of the best players are great football players I remember John John Rutherford from Scottish Fly Half you know these are, you can see they're good football players and it was funny when I went to a r- rugby session suddenly we played football in warm-ups everyone was playing football you know I just thought it was quite ironic because I think football is a great game mm. for any sport doesn't matter what sport you do whether you're a skier or a golfer if you can run around with the football at your feet you're going to have great balance great skills it is a fantastic sport that's why it's the world's best sports it's simple straightforward but it's incredibly skillful so i think <laughs> football can be transferred <laughs> over no sally no we've gonna stop that no football skills can be transferred uh over this will be the first we've got backgrounds <laughs> <laughs> the skills in football can be transferred over now and I, I i you know the more i kind of develop what i'm doing now i, I just think you know, you, you want kids who are kind of multi-talented. And I think the time to really specialise is like 15, 16. Mm-hmm. Up to then, you should, yeah, you should be playing football, but play other sports as well if you're a golfer. You know, play other sports as well. I think the, 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 getting multi-skilled, multi-talented is really important if you're going to go right to the top of whatever sport you eventually go into.
0: And how has your relationship and the decision that your parents made um, affected your relationship say with your kids you you seem to be a real family man Um, I only think of it in terms of my parents because both my parents had sort of fairly tricky relationships with their parents but as a result they're much much closer to us me and my brother Sam I think um, I mean I I must say you know I never
1: fell out I was never close to my parents after that I became very independent there's no doubt about that I was still you know, close to them in terms of you see them see them at Christmas and all that sort of stuff but it was I never had a really close relationship because of what happened when I was thirteen. All
0: yeah. because of that decision. Oh, to be sent
1: away to—I can't tell you how horrible this school was. I don't even want to go down that that line. It was—it was a merchant navy boarding school. Thirteen years old, you just packed off to school in on Anglesey in North Wales, and it was—it wasn't something you, you know. And I ended up playing rugby, but it was just you know, i, I don't look back at my school days with any fondness at all. Like, you know, it's really strange because i have obviously you know gone on to do various things, but you know they have. Old boys meetings and clubs. I've never been to one of them. Really? You know, I meet these guys, and I just go, "Guys, remember, we hated that school. Why are we? Why are you having reunions? All this stuff." So I've never gone to a reunion yeah. ever for the whole thing. So, so yeah, you so you have this kind of breakdown, not breakdown. You kind of, just Sally. Say, Sally, no, no. She's so just like a player. I've got absolutely no control over this. <laughs>
0: She's looking at you with utter disdain right now.
1: She's got this food on the table. What were we talking about then, sorry? It
0: was quite poignant, actually, because um, I think it's it's, it's really interesting that all those sort of slightly negative memories that you obviously had at school are tied up with rugby, and yet that is the, the... that's been your vehicle for huge success in your life and huge happiness, but there's a sort of irony to that, isn't there? Yeah, I think once,
1: once I got into it, because also what we suddenly realised when you'd miss, when you when you go from 13 to 14, 15, and then my, my father moved, um, we moved away, this didn't help either, I, just literally after I went to school, we moved away from linton on News. He got posted down to um, uh, RAF Bryce Norton, which is in Oxfordshire, so not too far from here. So suddenly... When I came over in the holidays, I didn't know anybody. I'm on this air force base, middle of nobody. I didn't know any of the kids, I didn't know any of the school kids because I've moved away from school. So even the holidays became this really horrible place because you're just trying to make friends with kids on a on a base, um, and so you just lose all the you lose to play football. You got to be playing football every day. You got to be playing all the time. And mm-hmm. you know if you really want to get to the top, you can't have a two or three year off when you're 13, 14, 15. So I just started playing rugby, and became good at rugby, and that became you know, I'm going to do this because I was good at it. So I started to you know, play for the school. I was captain of the school and all this sort of stuff. And then um, and the, the school was so useless, my school. They never sent boys to rugby trials. I didn't do any any rugby uh, trials. And then eventually when I was 18, in the upper six, it shut down, uh, which was probably the best thing could happen to it. It was, it, was, it was closed. And that final year, they let me go to a rugby trial and I went to all the Welsh schoolboy trials so in my last year because I schooled in Wales oh, I'm English as they can be I went to the Welsh schoolboy trials and then I didn't get picked by the Welsh schoolboys because there was abs- you know, the, the, the guy from North Wales who took me down it's quite a funny story he's so Welsh this guy he was saying you're going to be in the Welsh schoolboy teams you're the best player played this trial thought I played really well wasn't even picked in the squad because one I was from North Wales I think and two most important I was English <laughs> so I'm not picked <laughs> And the guys playing against me was, was Terry Holmes and Gareth Davis, these kind of players who went on to play for England, Wales. And and, and, I'm, and I'm sure I was a better player than them, but I didn't get into these into the Welsh schoolboy team. And um, then a year later, I'm now playing, I've left school, I'm playing for England Colts against the Welsh youth team. And most of the Welsh schoolboy team, including Gareth Davis <laughs> and Terry Holmes, including Gareth Davis and Terry Holmes are all in, in this team. And I'm now playing for England against them and we won we won and this schoolmaster came all the way from north wales and he was literally pointing at the Welsh selectors i told you i told you really? i told you oh my God. so we go back so it's all it's all good it's all very competitive but you know selection in rugby was just a very strange thing if you're in north wales trying to get into welsh schoolboy team, but my, my school never sent anyone to trials it was crazy um so you know looking back at the school days to sum it up it's not I, I he's kind of moved on but to go back to the previous question when we you know obviously married to Jane, got three three great kids. I was determined to a fault, you know, we, we, I'm going I'm to not let these kids down, I'm going to get very close to them and, you know, we, and hopefully, hopefully it's, it's, that's happened and we are a pretty close family. But that was definitely based on, you know, pretty falling out my parents at a very early age.
0: And, uh, I mean, they say everyone is as they are for a reason, I guess, as you say, that the positives that came out of it were that, you're a very committed father and husband, but also... Um, very independent and that clearly spurred you on not just in sport but also in business
1: I was really independent even you know um, I was going to go after school I was going to go to Durham University which is another story uh, to do law Um, and I forget the grades but I I needed something like ABC to get to to get to Durham University to do law which I I decided to do I don't know why I was going to do it but I decided to do it um, I got something like BBC, I missed it by one grade. Mm. So I assumed they'd let me in and I got rejected. I wasn't, couldn't, couldn't go. So they, they, turned me, they turned me down. So I then have decided I needed a job. I had to get away from my, my parents' home in uh, Bryars Norton. So I got a job in NatWest Bank. So I applied for this job. Before, and it was literally the advert was all about, you know if you've not got your grades at A-levels, join <laughs> NatWest Fear Bank. Not. Fear not. <laughs> so next thing, I've gone for an interview in NatWest Bank and I'm working in a bank in Richmond. And that's when I literally walked into Harlequins Football Club. Um, the bank put me up for three months in a sort of bed and breakfast somewhere. And I'm totally independent. I didn't know anyone in London. I just left home working at a bank. Um, and then lucky enough, um, I went down to Harlequins. I literally walked in. No one's ever heard of me and because I didn't go any try. You not know, I, I walked in. So I started playing for the fifth team. And everyone was going, where's where's this guy come from? And within about three or four weeks, I'm, I'm playing in the first team at Harlequins, just went straight into the first team at 18 years old living and and then i'm keeping out on some other players floor cause i know where to sleep or stay so i'm dossing around richmond somewhere staying on people's floor but it just made you very in, very independent in a, in a in a in a great way but the best story about it is within about six months Sorry, you know with i'm playing harlequin's first team literally within weeks you know I, even even i was surprised i'm now playing at twickenham because harlequin's used to play at twickenham i'm playing we play against cardiff i was playing against gareth edwards he was, in the, he was playing for Cardiff at Scrum Half. He was like this legend from Wales, and I'm playing for, for England. But then, I promise you, this is probably the best part of my personality or the worst part. I then get it. One of the players at Harlequin's was a Durham University guy. And he was, you know, I think his name was Gordon Wood. He was on the wing. And I think he played for England under-23s. But he, he went back to university and said, you know, got to get this, got to That's get Ronnie this. That's Ronnie
0: now. That's Ronnie. That's Ronnie. <laughs> <This> is... <laughs> okay. Ronnie. Ronnie and Sally are out. They've made the great escape. They've, made the great escape in the They've finally been listened to. So I get this, I get this letter.
1: Um, so Gordon Wood goes back to Durham University and goes to see all the powers that be. He you know, should get this guy to Durham University once to come. So I get this letter from Durham University going, um, you because know, now I'm playing for Harlequins, I was playing for England, England Colts and England Under-23s. So I get this letter from the Vice-Chancellor of Durham University saying, we've reviewed your application. We'd like to now offer you a place. I promise you, I just wrote back saying I wouldn't come to your university if it was the last university in the world. You know, I thought it was just something totally, utterly wrong mm. about I'm not I'm not selected one one year, but now I'm playing rugby and playing a good stand and They now want you to come to university, so I turned them down. Mm. Again, my my dad went nuts with me, he went he was crazy with me because I just didn't go. So that's why I end up going to Loughborough University to do sports science, which again, history would say was the best thing I ever did because Loughborough was fantastic with great rugby coach there called Jim Greenwood who's probably along with chalky yeah. White the best coach I've ever, ever had so I go to Loughborough Jim Greenwood really teaches me a huge amount about rugby which I didn't know and it just happened to be but I've you know I've always laughed when I get led from Durham University saying mm. you can you can come to university come now. now and I just stuck two fingers up to them and said sort of went Mad over, principle over my dead body <laughs> when I go to your university
0: what I want to know is because um, you describe yourself as as a player as effective but the next game, the very next game, in fact, disastrously vacant and haphazard.
1: I didn't describe myself as
0: that. You wrote that in your book.
1: Never, never. <laughs> you
0: did you I didn't write that.
1: my I didn't write my books.
0: Oh, I'm <laughs> fly! You don't admit that now. Um, but but you've always been as, a risk taker. Again, you say this. Um, oh, in terms of that, yeah. In
1: terms of player, I pride myself yeah. on being you know a flair player. I, I you know. Um, I think Jim Greenwood was great at Loughborough University because he kept saying to guys, we were amateurs. You know, we're going to we're going to try and really enjoy it. We're going to play the game different from anybody else." And at Loughborough University, we did. It was fantastic. And then when I went to Leicester Tigers and the Chalky White, they had a similar kind of approach to the game. We were amateurs. Yeah. You know, we had to go. We, we wanted to enjoy this, and we're all going to work Monday morning. So yeah. Yeah, that's the way I played the game. And. I was I like to think I oh, was one of the true you know great amateurs because I wanted to be an amateur player <laughs> but if we're going to be amateur we're going to go and really, really enjoy the game on Saturday because you're know, not getting paid to do this so we've got to enjoy it and yeah. I've never kind of lost that kind of spirit of how I, how I played
0: so what I want to know is is, is risk taking um, an instinctive thing or a deliberate <laughs> premeditated thing do you feel
1: I don't think I'm a risk taker I'm, I'm I on, would, on the pitch yeah I would I would I would <laughs> it's, it's, it's calculated risk You've just got to get sunny back okay. in
0: Sally. Not helping this interview at all, so. <laughs> okay, Sally's back in now. Back in for so those, back in for the yeah, yeah. About those worried, yeah. she's um, still looking pretty perplexed, concerned that the food isn't in her mouth. And the I think the, table. Risk,
1: the risk taking in in a, in a team going like rugby definitely comes from the coach. I mean, in terms of the, the coach will install that in you. Right. that He wants to see you play this way. Jim Greenwood was awesome at that. Chalky White was awesome at that. They, you know, and I think that's what I wanted to. do I wanted the team to play in a certain way. And we and we did, I'd like to think. And I think the team the way a team plays does reflect the kind of personality and the way the coach wants you to play. I don't think you go out and take risks unless that's been installed into you and you know, you're only taking risks if you think it's gonna pay off and you're gonna, you know, do something that's gonna help you win the game of rug rugby, I guess.
0: It's exciting to watch, especially for the fans. I mean, I guess you could say that about the French over the years, kind of mercurial side that when it works it's it's just Gorgeous running rugby to watch, but when it doesn't, it's a bit disastrous. Well, yeah, but I think
1: the England team that I was lucky enough to coach—it's you, because you're kind of the England rugby team. You're kind of almost stuck in this time what where everyone thinks what's well, England rugby team—they're going to be tough, physical, kick penalties, drop goals. We scored so many tries. The mm-hmm. team that I was lucky enough to coach—you look at the, 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 the even the back row alone. You know, if you look at Dalalio, Hill, and Back, I mean, they're just three sevens players. They're the fastest players. You then add in in the back line, you know, Jason Robinson, and you know these sort of types of play. We're an amazing team, and we scored. So, you look you just look at the number of wins, the number of tries we scored. This was not a typical England team, mm-hmm. and that hopefully reflected me as a coach and how I wanted to play the game. And you know, as I was played for England 21 times, but I didn't play for a coach who was anywhere like my kind of mindset, the way to play the game. And you kind of look back at your playing career, with not, not regrets, because you, you're glad you played for England and. Played 21 times, won a one a grand slam. But I, I just, yeah, there's no game I'd show my kids that listen to me playing. Cause there's no game that I was, you know, really go wow, that was a great game of rugby that I was involved in. It just didn't really happen. Uh, whereas, like to think the, the team I coached, well, there were some amazing games, some amazing games that we that we played in. And I like to think all the players who played under me would say, you know, it was an exciting time to play in the team. Mm-hmm. We, we kind of went on the pitch with a lot of adrenaline flowing, go, wow, we're going to really play here, and they're going to have to play well to, to stop this team.
0: The history books will say that that you are a better coach than a player, and that does seem to be the case of a lot of the great coaches globally, particularly in football. You know, talking about the likes of Mourinho, uh, Wenger, Ferguson. Why do you think that is? I'm
1: not, I'm not. I don't think there's any any magic to that. I, I think you know. I, you know, I, I played in a time where it was a very. Am- I played in amateur era, so I'd you know, I'd love to play. I'd love to play professional rugby. That's why I, I could eyeball any England rugby player coach and sort of say, you know, just, you know, almost button it because you, you know how lucky you Appreciate are. It, yeah. yeah, just, guys, just, just soak this. This will go vast very quickly. I and mean, now I know them all, but even better now after we've all kind sort of moved on. And it does go by hugely quickly. And I say to any rugby player, just enjoy every minute of it and don't leave anything mm. to chance. Just get involved and get stuck in because this will go around like that, like that. So that was I was able to do that because I played for England 21 times, which isn't in by today's standard not many, but that was like five years because yeah. no games we played about five games a year. We didn't have you know 20 30 caps a year. So I I didn't I was playing for the team for four or five years, and you know I loved it. It was fantastic, and we we had a ball, but we never really sat down and said right we're going to take the world on here. We're going to really because amateur we mm-hmm. there was no reason why anybody could because we all had jobs to do. Whereas the moment the game went professional, that's when it was just fantastic, and that's why I was lucky to be the first professional coach because I was going okay got to put up or shut up now you know he's been been moaning so long about you know in your day you didn't play that way well we got a chance now so that's what kind of drove me on my kind of my own experiences of of playing for England
0: why do you think it is then that that you know coaches like Mourinho could come sort of be quietly under the radar I'm thinking of his time at Barcelona as translator it's
1: just it's just lovely when you've mentioned a couple of times sort of passion it doesn't matter what you do whether you're you're running a Business, you're running a doctor's surgery or veterinary surgery, or coaching a football team. If you're passionate about it, you'll yeah. do it well. You'll do it well. And so you
0: don't need to be a good player to be a good no, coach. But no. what about the what about some of the great players yeah. that could be great coaches, and we haven't really seen it yet? And I'm thinking about the likes of Stephen Gerrard at Rangers and Frank Lampard at Derby County. How do you think that's going to play out? Do you do you think they've I do think, you think they're transferable skills to, I, from I, a player I, to a coach? I
1: think it's absolutely fantastic. I just think you know. Yeah, I'm not a whatever the word is. I'm happy to have any nationality coach, but I'm, yeah, I'm English, I love seeing English coaches come through. So I think um, you know Gerard Lampard, you know, these are big decisions they've made because they could certainly go the rest of their life, be the TV pundits and have a nice lifestyle. To go and take the plunge, to go into Rangers, go to Derby, these are big clubs, they both big clubs. For both those guys to, to put it all on the line now, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I guess to answer your question is, if you've got the passion for it, would it help if you're a player? Yes, definitely, definitely. Is it a prerequisite? No. You know, hence Mourinho, Wenger. Mm. Um, but if you, you know, Zidane is the opposite. You know, Zidane, who I think is amazing, you know, what he's done at, um, at Madrid. Um, if you if you got that aura about you, I think there's a big, big advantage. And I, I personally think uh, me playing for England, playing for the Lions, that helped me hugely. Because I, as I said before, I could eyeball the players and go, Come on, guys. We can. You know, this will go very quickly. Um, was it a prerequisite? No. If you have got this passion for it, no matter what you do, if you have got a passion for it, and if it's what you actually you know, live for every day. You'll, you'll do it. You'll do it well. Absolutely, do it well. So you don't need to be a great player. Does it help? Doesn't doesn't hurt. for Sure. Especially if you're a really great like Gerard and Lampard, both complete legends. Zidane. I think it helps helps a lot. But it's it's not. Yeah, I can understand why someone like Mourinho does well. But Mourinho. You know, I remember I am a big Chelsea fan. You know, I think Mourinho, Wenger, if they were running the NHS, they'd run it well. They'd do it really, really well. Get them in. We need it. They'd be passionate about it. But you you can only do it if that's why you can transfer between sports, but you've got to be passionate about it. If Mm. you've not got that absolute passion, it won't work. Mm. But if you're totally and utterly passionate about whatever you're going to do, you and the media, you'll do it really well. Mm. You'll do it well. If you haven't got that, you're going to come second at best.
0: How much of a, of a good coach is a good teacher? I mean, how much um, do you need to be able to, to teach and, and coach the best at and identify what that the best is in those players? Yeah, good
1: question. So I think going back to your question about sometimes top players don't make it, mm. I, I think because for, for, for whatever reason, they've not learned to teach. And teaching is about communicating. Um, I'm a qualified teacher, hence again, I was lucky I went to Loughborough, did a degree in sports science. Did a whole year doing a, um, whatever it's called. Um, uh, BSc, what's oh, it? yeah, teacher yeah. training, whatever it's called. Anyway, I did a whole year teacher training. Yeah. So I'm a fully qualified teacher. And to teach you how to communicate, if you, mm-hmm. and, and, and you probably know, if, to go and for six months, teach a bunch of 12, 13-year-olds every single day is a tough thing to do. Teaching is not easy. Teaching is something you can learn. You can, you can be taught how to do it. And I think these are the key skills. So a top player, you know, Gerard Lampard, they've got the football knowledge, they've mm. got this knowledge, and, the they've, and they've got the passion. Now they've got to learn how to teach it, how to communicate it to, to the players. And that is not an instinctive thing, you've got to learn how to do that. Hopefully, that's why they do all these uh, football badges, um, uh, certificate of education. That's what oh, I'm trying to go. think of. You do your cert ed. I did my year cert ed after my degree, so I'm a fully qualified teacher. So it's almost like saying every football player should do a cert ed, you should mm. do a year learning how to teach it. And I think that's what the you know the all the UEFA badges uh, do. I mean, I've done all the UEFA badges. I'm, I did all my football badges. I've not got a single qualification to coach rugby, but I'm a fully qualified UEFA coach uh, because I did all that in my in my year. But it's it's how you teach it. Yeah. So they've got they've got the knowledge of football. Can they teach it? Can they communicate it? Then the third big skill is that, you know you are a business person. You are buying selling, buying and selling players, having to do with some of these agents. Which I, again, I saw this first down at Southampton. It was. It was just, it was just amazing what I saw in football. I just sat in some of these rooms shaking my head that some of the people you end up speaking to, football agents and players, and some of the stuff that goes on. So you got to understand that side of the business really, really well, mm. and, and how that actually operates. And I think they do. And I, I particularly, I love Steven Gerrard. I love Lampard. You know, I, hope, I hope John Terry goes and does the same thing. You know, once he finishes, he stops playing, I think Terry will be, you know, could be a great, great coach a great manager. So I just think they're great to do it because, make no bones about it. Doesn't matter how good a player they've been, they're now moving into a different world, the media being the media is gonna be all over them. Mm. And I just think it's fantastic. So well done to all all to all two of them. Hopefully Terry does the same thing as well.
0: Yeah, Gary Neville's story proved it's certainly not easy. It's not
1: easy. It's, it's 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 not easy and that's why I admire all these people doing these top jobs, especially in football, because you know, it was it was another level from rugby to be brutally honest. That's mm. what I saw when I was at Southampton just the the fans the local media the pressure is just unbelievable Mm. and you're doing it week in week out so these managers who survive you harry redknapps and these guys just got massive admiration for them because it's tough Mm. make no bones about it it's tough it's Mm. not a normal job and the pressure from the fans is just amazing especially when it's not going well Mm. you know to to be able to stand there and cop it which they do just getting out your cargo in the car park you you're running this gauntlet of just abuse. I mean, it's just, this, I mean, if it's not going well.
0: Particularly in the era of social media, you're oh, just so exposed now,
1: aren't you? It's gone to a different level completely from, from yeah. even when I coached the, the the social media side of things really has taken it off. So you know, I just admire these guys hugely. And, you know, I think we all do secretly against. We love it. The football, about to come to a football World Cup, you know, it's just going to be amazing. There's going to be mm. people whose careers are made forever and people whose careers are going to be ruined by the next mm. few weeks.
0: It's funny that you talk about passion because I i would assume that there's some argument to say that to be slightly detached from it as a coach to be able to compartmentalize slightly and treat it more like a business may be beneficial may be helpful um i'm I'm thinking about in terms of national coaches are just so passionate and it is their own country that they're coaching that maybe just a slight element of detachment would be useful if you're not perhaps from the country that you're coaching i think um
1: not really. I guess no. my answer to that is I, I think there's no right or wrong. I think every, and that's why football management, football playing is great because you, every personality is different. You know, and some people do it one way. The, you, the most important, you got to do it your way and what, what fits for you. All, all I would say, and I still think now, probably think, I think like a player. The players will know, you know, the players will know, is this guy the real deal or is he not? And they will never know, know, and if he's mm. the real deal, you have this you know it's a lovely saying about losing the change room you can mm. you can lose the change room, but it's mainly based on the fact that they probably think you're not quite up to it or you've taken some shortcuts or you're not delivering mm. or you're not really throwing the kitchen sink at it, and they they will they will know, mm. and I think it gets even more challenging then when you have uh, say a football changing room uh, a club changing room, we've got different nationalities, different cultures mm. because when you're coaching an England football team or coaching a rugby team, it's probably pretty straightforward. The kind of culture you're trying to create, you'll understand that, especially if you've played. Gareth Southgate will understand this now because he's a player. Um, So I think, by the way, I think he's only doing a great job and I think he's got a real chance of being a big success with this. Um, So
0: come on, go on, say it. Can we win the World Cup? We can definitely
1: win the World Cup. Football more than rugby because, you, you know upsets happen more in football than rugby you don't get many big t- you know, surprises in rugby in football you, you you kind of do and if we get ourselves organized I mean I am I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless at this I, I always think England gonna win at rugby I always think we're gonna win at football my whole DNA is based on you know 1966 <laughs> I always think England gonna win and I look at the team now and I look at it and you look at every player in the in the team they're all playing the premiership they're all playing for great teams and playing for the United and the city and I said, "Wow! If they could just—I really believe this—they, so they can—they can win. You win games one-nil; mm-hmm. it can happen. So you know, you go in full of optimism. Obviously, the you know, the the bookmakers wouldn't back up those thoughts. But you just—I think World Cups are great times. Every four years, you know, I, I put every fixture in my diary. I know when they're happening. When I'm getting home on time to watch these games, I just think it's a fantastic time. And just really, you know, not envy, but I feel very—what's the word?" Um, just you look at south going wow what an amazing thing to do in your life whatever happens to him he's gonna go wow i did it yeah and you, and you feel very uh very lucky to have done it yourself and also very what's the what's the right word not envious um, you just sort of say you admire him for doing yeah. it and you go wow you know it'd be something you'd love to do if you had the the, the skills to do it
0: um just as a sort of a, a side issue and i know that people are probably sick of discussing and debating this but i am interested in your opinion of um Raheem Sterling and his and his tattoo and and the the pressure that's put on these footballers to be role models and also the pressure on people like Gareth Southgate to micromanage them in your view um, well first of all what do you think of the tattoo and do you think that um, Southgate has got to take more control of his players or do you think that it's no one's business what you put on your body
1: no, I think England are in a good shape and I think Southgate's done a great job I really, I really do I, I really think he's he's really come in he's been he's been strong he's been firm and as as for sterling all all i'd say is that he did it for a reason and i think that's a very personal reason i'm only reading what i've been impressed about his, his his dad and the reason for it and you you've got to go you know what you do with your own body is entirely up to you especially if there's a you know a um a positive reason in his own mind why he did it so i i just you know just wouldn't bother me one little bit you just got to move on quickly i mean there's all sorts of, you know, if you start examining everyone's tattoos on every footballer and rugby player... You'd be there a long
0: time for a start. <laughs> you have a long
1: time and you get into all sorts of areas. So I, I could see why the press wrote about it but I think, OK, it's, it's a one-day story, move on quickly. Yeah, right. Um, but th- they've got such space to fill with this World Cup mm. upon us. This stuff like that gets blown out of all proportion. But he's a great player. I wish him well. This should make no difference whatsoever. And they just got to move on quickly and stop talking about it. And uh, you know, to me, it was a complete non-story.
0: Did, did you find that there was a lot of pressure on your players? Did you feel in rugby you're slightly more under the radar than in football? Like, Were you able to go into 2003 um, without the press on your back?
1: Or did, did you feel that pressure? No, you felt that pressure for for sure. But I think you it was you more mentioned about
0: rugby than it was about. Yeah, but you, also know, front you mentioned
1: before, I think social media has made a massive yeah. difference. I mean, social media was just about around in two thousand and three, but it wasn't really. Mm. I mean, it's not that long ago, but there the, the wasn't a the pressure now. What's happening in social media and videos and cameras and, and just the whole pressure. But it's all part of the manager's job. When we spoke about you know Gerrard and Lampard. It's part of their job of handling this. Mm. Um, but but don't think it doesn't make a difference. You know, you can. You know, you're just, you're just trying to get to a World Cup and you historically you're trying to put everything in place so there's no distractions, mm. you know. And, you know, one of my favourite say- sayings was always, how do you want to be remembered? That was always on the top of every note paper. how do you want to be remembered? You know, and I know how I want to you be remembered.
0: You put remember. it on the paper to the play at the England Yeah, Bridge.
1: it was one of, our, one of our sayings, how do you want to be remembered? Because what I'm trying to say, this will, this will be a very short period of life. Do you remember being, you know... Do you want to be remembered as someone who's done something that's so daft or stupid that's brought the whole team down? Which is mm-hmm. totally possible. Mm-hmm. Any of us could do that by just doing something daft. Or do you remember by the person who did everything humanly possible to get themselves individually in the right physical, mental shape and the team to perform well? And you know, and I, I made some mistake, There's nothing wrong with losing as long as you've done everything humanly possible to win. Mm-hmm. Then you can live with yourself and life will go on. If you fail somewhere, you've you've meant you've taken a shortcut or one of the players has. Is let the team down. You'll never ever forgive yourself if that's your one moment in time mm. of doing it. That, that's and that's where I, I love what happened in two thousand and three. And I make no bones about talking about it because you know you you would. I said to Andy Robinson, the coaches, "Is there anything more we could have done?" You know, before the results came through, and, and the deep down, the answer was no, there wasn't. You know, mm. we we kind of we thrown everything. Out. The players were awesome. Yeah, I can't speak high enough of every single one of them. Not a single player didn't throw the kitchen sink away. We had nothing. Outside of trying to win this next game of rugby that crossed our minds. We weren't distracted by anything, but that wasn't something we didn't work on, talk about, you know, how we worked with everyone's wives and girlfriends and family. We just had it all done to make Mm -hmm. sure no one got distracted. Mm -hmm. You know, that way, you know, and it was great going into those games because you just knew that if everyone did their job properly, including me, especially me, including selection tactics, there's no reason why we shouldn't win this game and no one can beat us they just need someone to let us down, someone to do something stupid. Mm. You know, including during the game to get sent off, you know, to not be able to play under pressure was massive. So this was all of like the coaching was about how you play under pressure, how you do all this stuff. And it was an amazing time and so they just glad to get through the whole thing. And this is what South has got to deliver, you know, in the next few weeks, you know. Can we really play under pressure? No distractions. And you hope the media sort of supports him in a way and doesn't get sidetracked on stuff that's I mean non stories.
0: Mm. Mm. Sorry to ask you the question, because no, I, 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 I was adding to it, I was adding to the non-story by asking you, but um, what was the difference between 1999 and 2003, was it this sort of weeding out of distractions or people? Or
1: The 99, I'd been doing the job less than two years, um, deep down, and deep down, didn't, yeah, I was always saying the right things we're going to win the World Cup and all the things you've got to say deep down did I think we're good enough no um, we just weren't enough experience I wasn't experienced enough the players weren't experienced enough and we, we were certainly way behind in terms of the real fundamentals into our fitness was nowhere near uh, good enough to play the game the way I wanted to play um, you know at the time you get beat in the in the quarter final in Paris by the South Africans and you're absolutely lambasted by the press <laughs> You you you, know, you think you've, you you can't I can't even explain how bad it is to anybody who's not been through it. Hence, I can totally feel for Stuart Langster and these guys who've who've been through this um, real big loss because it is just you can't really describe. That's what I'm saying. You know, sport is not a business. It's it's big than that you, you it's just with you. You can't go anywhere. Every you walk to the local shops, you think everyone's looking at you, and no, then they're not, but you think they are, and it's it's just this massive weight. So you, you kind of kind of got through that and then I somehow survived because a lot of people were after my head. So you know, big thank you to Francis Barron, the chief executive, Frank Cotton especially, who was on the board. They said, no, we think he's doing the right things despite losing the quarterfinals. So I keep my job and that made me, I was pretty focused anyway, to be, to be honest, but that just, if I could, doubled my focus, saying, right, there will be no shortcuts, there will be no distractions, no matter what player it is. He is going to go if they're not... 100% going to do it the way that's the best for the team and, and I, I kind of changed because I kind of, okay got, to work, got out of jail that one. I've got one chance of this now. i have got four years And that's what happened and we never looked back then. So I think looking back losing in 99 was probably the, the you know, Probably the best thing could have happened to us at the time. You hate it. You, you can never plan to lose and think mm-hmm. so we good It's horrible horrible and that's why you kind of love coaching and hate coaching because it's just it's just all-encompassing. But you kind of survive it and then we never look back from that and made all the right decisions. We made a few changes with certain things, players, and we never look back. And that was just his history. We arrived at the next World Cup, absolutely favourite to win it. I mean, we were ranked six, I think, in 99. And that was about right. 2003, we're number one ranked team in the world. Favourites tend to win. If, if England were going to the World Cup in the football this year's number one ranked team, you expect them to win. Mm. And that's that was the... That was the added pressure away because you love that because we've done everything right and we should win this World Cup. It's going to be an upset if we don't. And that was an amazing thing to be um, involved in.
0: You talk a lot about um, your your love and respect for the players, you know, down to a man, every single one of them, you would um, no doubt um, have on that plane again to to a World Cup. But how did you get to the point where you were able to select those who travelled? And how hard was that process?
1: Yeah, the selection of the final... Because you only take 30. So the selection of the final 30, that was one of the toughest things. Not for the majority of them, but the last few. The team kind of picked itself by that stage. But, you know, there was three, four players that even now kind of get quite... You know, Graham Roundtree, top of the list, who didn't go. Um, You know, Simon Shaw didn't go. Um... Austin Healy didn't, didn't go. So these are the sort of players you kind of... Uh, You're
0: not to so bother about Austin though, right? No, I am. I'm only joking. Right? I'm only joking. But know. everybody always teases Austin and I feel sorry for him because in a way his yeah. versatility was his undoing. He was so good at so many different positions. But it's almost like he didn't cement himself in one. The yeah. top of the list yeah.
1: would be great. The, the one player I really, really um, possibly think I should have got that wrong was, was, was Roundtree, the prop. Yeah. I mean, Roundtree was ever-present. But it just, I won't go through all the details. I had to take four props or five props. If I was gonna take five props, he was gonna go. If I was gonna take four, he wasn't. Oh. But that meant somebody else would have missed out in the back row, would have mean someone else wouldn't have gone. So I had a lot of debate about it. And at the end of the day, you know, I won't go through the technicalities of loose head and tight head, but he couldn't go. That phone conversation was the hardest phone call I've ever had to make in my life. And I, I, even now, I don't feel good about it because deep down, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure I was right. The others, the that's hundred percent. They were yeah. unlucky.
0: At least, if you've got strength in your convictions, you yeah. can rest easy at yeah. night. But if there's an element of doubt in your that mind, was,
1: that was the one, and it was and it's your call, yeah. you know. And Graham round, Roundtree, you know, I don't blame him. I'd have been the same thing. He'll go to his, he'll go to his grave going, you know, should have been there, should have been, been in that team. And you know, every now and then, I hear him, I heard him once He was interviewing on the radio when he was coaching Quinns or somewhere, and someone said, "Well, you know, did you feel that way during the World Cup?" And he said. I didn't go to the World Cup, <laughs> and the guy didn't. Re- the guy had forgotten because everyone thought he was in the World Cup team. And I listened to, it. Oh no." Uh, and I and I see him now; and he's great because he's a good, he's an amazing guy. and We have a firm shake of hands and a hug, but deep down, I've never been able to really re talk to him yeah. since that since that day. So this stuff is serious, serious stuff. You're you're making big decisions, and I don't about take, I don't I oh, totally people's yeah, lives yeah, completely yeah. and yeah. utterly. People's lives have actually uh, changed on those. And those decisions, and it's it's not easy. You know, Simon sure the same thing. You know, that these are these are these are players who, on any other time, would have been in the team. But you got to make those calls. You only know, you take 30, mm-hmm. and you got to you got to move on. And you kind of live with yourself. Because I guess we won the World Cup. But if we'd lost the World Cup and we'd not scrimmaged well, I'd have sort of made a mistake with not taking Graham. And um, but he's a coach now. He'll he'll know himself how hard it is because he's got to pick teams, mm-hmm. and you'll know it's not as it's not as straightforward as people may think.
0: What is that great anecdote that I heard about um, going down to the Marines and you being given a little list? Yeah, It wasn't
1: an anecdote, we went um, just before the World Cup in 99 we went down to the train with the Royal Marines uh, which I loved because, uh, and I was totally comfortable with these guys because I was from a service family, spent my whole life in, in mm. the in the military, so I went down to see the Marines and said I wanted to you know, do all this uh, sort of team building stuff and they were just amazing. Um, when I say team building stuff, when we were on seeking helicopters, they just threw the kitchen sink at us to actually try and get the team really working. You know, how to handle pressure mainly was my big brief to them. But we had like six days down there, after two nights, there was a guy called Brigadier Pillar. He was the boss there. He had set this all up, and they were fantastic. He, he said, you know, you may need to go out for a, for a beer, so it's all great. So, so second night we went out for a beer.
0: Drinking with a marine, I mean, that's drinking with brave. Marine.
1: So we went out with uh, the, the, the brigadier. He was the boss. <laughs> And we just sat and had a quiet beer in the local pub, and he just took out his bit of paper, and um, there was a few names on his bit of paper, and I looked at these names from the England players, and he just said to me, he looked at me, and he said, "These guys wouldn't make Royal Marines," and I said, well, "What are you on about?" And I looked at the names, and i will obviously never repeat who the names are. But he said they wouldn't make Royal Marines, and I, and he said, "I didn't tell you this, you know, we behind the scenes have been monitoring all the conversations, everything that's been going on, all this sort of stuff." and that's just thought to would give you that list of players and i looked at this list and I, if someone honestly had said to me you know of all the people you don't quite kind of what's the word trust or you don't try no, to, yeah it was pretty it was accurate 100 really? accurate really? so within 24 hours forty eight hours they'd found out because when you think about the marines are the ultimate selectors yeah. because they make a lot of their their selection is self-selection in other words you don't get you don't get on the helicopter unless all your colleagues and the marines trust you because they know more than anybody else. You get one weak link in your team, he can bring down the whole team. You yeah. you don't come back from your trip on the helicopter, and that was a real. I didn't take any. I I didn't take any notice of it. It didn't, it didn't affect my selection at all for that World Cup in '99. But looking back post '99, they were right. They were absolutely spot on, and I learned a big lesson. Because I just said, you've got, you got to toughen up on selection. You've got to go with what you're seeing, what your gut feeling was. Because the list was accurate. And I could see it. And we didn't, we didn't have a great World Cup. We didn't play very well. But the team wasn't as one. And then you look at 44 years later, it was, you know, we'd, we'd gone to see the Marines there. He would have gone, every single one of those players would be a raw Marine. Trust every single one of them. Because I knew them, of what they were doing. So it was a great, great moment. And it was yeah. a big, big lesson for me. Because going, you know, especially when I survived, and you keep your job going, right? I'm just going to not take any, you know, n- no shortcuts, going to absolutely pick the strongest team. If any player doesn't want to come on this trip and, and really put it in, you know, they can go. That's what happened.
0: So I reckon if I sit down and compare the squads from 99 and 2003, bar retirements, no, we could probably you work it out. No,
1: you won't work it out. Come on. No, you I won't might work give it out. You won't work it
0: out. I bet there's people listening now who are visibly. Googling, trying to work it out. Um uh, so, okay, what your what are your uh, feelings on the, the current state of English rugby?
1: Oh no, really really good. There's a bit of a spat going on at the moment and um hasn't been a good Six Nations and you know, the Barbarians game. But yeah, I, I just look at the players and you know, end of the day, um Yeah, England England is a quite a complex business to run because the players are all contracted to their clubs there's a lot of personalities involved and it's it's uh, it's something that if you do successfully you should get a big pat on the back because it's not it's not an easy thing it's not like running a football team where you've got everyone in the room same with what gareth southgate's doing now it's quite challenging so there's there's a lot going on um you know i'm a big kind of fan of eddie i like eddie i think he's been a good choice but i i just think my personal views are just last since the start of the year they just got a bit distracted and I can fully understand that, and that's why I keep saying to everyone, I can." It's, it's, that's why things happened, but I can understand it because at one point, I think start of the year, they would play twenty three, one twenty two. Mm. The win loss record was unbelievable. It was almost too good. It was kind of almost unreal. And I just think they started to, it was, I not believe their own publicity, but when you win twenty two out of twenty three, you start to think you're invincible, mm. and I think you start maybe just doing things that maybe you wouldn't normally done mm. two years prior to that. Like what? Like like what? I um, could give you loads of examples. Um, what
0: distracted by the fame or just, by your own self importance? Just by,
1: by just by distracted. Where you know, if I use the the, the the interesting thing with Eddie, and he and I've met him since, so I've told him this. So it's nothing talking out of school. You know, when you got into that sort of, um, uh, you yeah, know, got some issues with the guys on the train after. Oh, yeah, you know, you yeah. got into sort of yeah. into stuff. Well, the big story was Eddie Jones had a, sort of a bit of a problem with a few of the Scottish fans on the in Manchester um, station on the Sunday after playing Scotland. Um, so mm-hmm. no one picked this up, but for me, who if you're in the job, my first question was, "What's he doing in Manchester on a Sunday morning after you played Scotland?" So when you think about it, England played Scotland Saturday night,
0: mm.
1: five o'clock kickoff, so you would have finished at seven. All I know is the next day, in charge of the international team. That is a busy day, especially if you've lost the game. That is a massive game next day with the media, with the players, with injuries. It's a huge day. And Eddie had accepted an invitation to go and watch Chelsea Man United at Old Trafford with Sir Alex Ferguson. So even that, I'm looking in going, that's how he's been distracted because mm-hmm. he's assuming we're going to beat Scotland. I've got an invite to go, yes, I can go down, leave the team. And that's, so those things, just all those little things start to add up. And... That's what I mean by distracted. It's so easy to get distracted, you know, going off doing dinners, speaking at stuff, players doing too much stuff outside. of. It can happen so easily. It's almost like we've done it, we've done nothing. You know, you've won 22 out of 23, but, you know, the the first two years after World Cup are always rebuilding. Everyone's at their weakest. Mm -hmm. The two years leading into World Cup, every team gets stronger. Um, You know, in, 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 in January, a lot of the team, including Eddie, was talking about the All Blacks game in November. And I'm going, hang on, guys, <laughs> that's in November. You've got six nations. You've got to play Wales. You've got to play Ireland, especially. You've got France. You've got S- Scotland and the towns. You know, I'm very clear about this, you know. And I've, and again, I've said this to Eddie, the only thing, it's absolutely part of our team rule. If anybody spoke about anything apart of the next game, we're going to have a real problem, you know, cause we're, we're with me. Because you can ask me about World Cups, about all I, I, guess all I speak about is our next game. And if we're playing S- Scotland, wherever it was, is our next game. That's, I'll speak about Scotland, but I'll speak about know the game. And if you take that mantra in, just the next game, next game, next game, one day, the next game, maybe the World Cup final, then we'll speak. But until then, don't get, I won't, I'm not going to be distracted because that's the only thing I want to talk about. And it's very simple stuff. We all agreed it and no one ever didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And it's such a simple thing. But suddenly in January, we're talking about, you know, we're number two in the world. It's all about beating the All Blacks in November, becoming number one in the world. guys. <laughs> whoa what are you doing but i don't think there's anyone at twickenham who can sit down with eddie and go hang on what are you doing and they just got distracted mm. and i think getting a sort of a real wake-up call in the six nations i think history will show that's a bit like us losing in the world cup in in the world cup in 99 i think that would be the real wake-up call and the shaking you need And i think the will go well against africa because um because they've been in a, they're in a corner now, and they've and it's not they've not got great players. You know, I think they've they've got some players that seriously for the first time match up of two thousand and three. You know, Farrell, Mario Tojo, the Vinopola brothers, Daly. These are really top players. So you've you've probably now got at least five, six truly world class players, who arguably were getting most teams in the world, and that's what you need. And you get a coach, and I think Eddie is a good coach. And I just think he just just got a bit distracted. Um, but I think he's now not distracted, and he's got to stop all this. You know, you're reading today about squabbles with the owners, about injuries. You just got to get that off, and you've got to get everybody back on the next game.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So you're obviously talking about the Bath owner and some pretty big injuries happening on England's time, on on Eddie's time. Does an England coach have a, a sense of responsibility to, to club rugby, so that send them back in one piece? I and mean, because you know we're talking about career-threatening injuries yeah it's a, a is their training too tough and b should eddie is it a respect thing does, does he need to actually think about their their lives outside of england rugby a bit more
1: well, the answer is I, I don't think you know there's, there's no way anyone's gone into a training session trying to get a player injured mm-hmm. whatever these these things do actually happen but it doesn't need the club owner um to actually come in bruce craig in this instance, to come in and have to sort of stamp his feet. And I can understand totally why Bruce Craig is really fed up. If I was the owner of a club, if I was a club coach, to have my star players injured in England training sessions, that's going to send me off the deep end, so I'm not going to be happy. So I I can understand all the emotion coming out of the clubs, and I totally understand that, and I can totally agree with that. But also from an England point of view, there should be a lot of emotion coming from the England RFU going, guys, we need our strongest team to play for England. You can't be denting the players. Mm. You know, if, You know, it's uh, one of my favourite lines, it's amazing how good a coach I became when I got a fully fully strength team. When the f- teams at full strength, no injuries, it's amazing how good a coach you become. <laughs> yeah. You start denting players in training, yeah. you don't get paid to, you know, have again, great you training You can't go sessions.
0: into a training session with, with that at the back of your mind, can you?
1: The, but this, you know, I, I had a guy called Dave Redden who I think you would know. Dave, mm. Dave was the best I've ever come across and I've worked with him Olympic sports. Dave Reddin was our, you know, strength and conditioning fitness. This doesn't really explain what he what he did. His number one thing to me was he he was on top of every individual player. And there was days Natalie came to me and saying, "Right, these guys we need to give them a beasting today. They need a real serious session. These guys shouldn't train. These guys shouldn't train because this and, and he was just he was just a genius. And you know, I would, without exception, I'd always go with him. I'd question it a few times because. Mm. You know, we may have it could be a Wednesday afternoon. We've got a big game on Saturday, and he's coming to say these two guys shouldn't train. Now we want we want to train. I want to train, mm. but I always went with him. I always went with him, and he because I knew he was he was making decisions not because he's saying well, Let's not train because we're going to stay fit for Saturday. But I'd rather not train somebody and put somebody else into training their position than even risk any injuries. And he was just you know he did all these tests on them. You know, not any. The physical test but you know just a physiological test and when they're a bit low and he worked really well with every club um equivalent because there's a club yeah. strength and conditioning and we, we made it clear we, we and i i can't recall denting a player ever in an england training session and we train hard but we'd also train for small bursts and we didn't do anything that they weren't used to doing mm-hmm. so we wouldn't want to do anything that wasn't part of what you'd expect to be doing in an england training camp because you know we got the star players you need them fit for Saturday mm. and um, I remember one of my just to sort of sum this up we used to um, well, I tried once this was quite an amusing conversation with Wilkinson because you got your star guy and we're going to go on a full on training session and David said something to me and I and he said about Johnny and I said okay so I went up to Wilkinson and I said to him and I put him in a, in a yellow vest so I put, you know we're training and whatever so I put a yellow vest on him and I said to the whole team you know if you've got a yellow vest on you can't tackle them and I've literally got hold of Wilkinson and eyeballed him and said, You don't go into any contacts, you go into any rocks, you just 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 play the playmaker, just move the ball around. And he looked at me and said, yeah, 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 yeah. So literally, we started off, I turned my back, the yellow vest has gone off. <laughs> he's chucked on the floor, he's gone and smashed somebody. There's a full on contact session. and I mean, that sums him up, but also it's kind of a weakness as well, because he's the ultimate team person. He didn't want to be singled out. Having yellow vest, and my only mistake yeah. was I should have put two or three people in yellow vests. So he didn't feel out on his own, but he felt. A bit <laughs> but I've just gone out to him, and we just laughed. To be fair, but I, you know, got him off the pitch. Then I said subbed sub him off completely, so he couldn't play. But he just r- riddled it down. So yeah, it's training, training, but.
0: So how is this going to play out then between Eddie and the owners? Yeah, not, not
1: good. I don't like. I don't like. It's what I call a distraction again. Yeah. We, we, you know, with the with a week of a test match we play South Africa. And we're we're talking about a spat between the England coach and the and the yeah. owner. where really, that you know, the, they're both they're both right. Eddie's right. You can't have people, and I think no one's telling him how to, to run his coaching sessions. But they are. There's been a lot of injuries now, mm. and, and I think it is too many, and these are serious injuries. He's
0: damaging his own cause as well as the clubs.
1: He's tot- that's what I'm saying. He's he's totally, and he's also damaging. You know, he's he is damaging his own cause because he's a good good player. He's losing and. Uh, I don't know what's going training, so I can't comment on it all I'm saying is you, you've got to be really careful and, and just say, you know mm. you've got your full strength team England England will beat most teams if they're fully fit and loaded, yeah. but you know heaven only knows if they lost say Farrell the loss to him would be huge mm. huge so mm. so you've got to be careful but I just don't like the spats between the clubs and the RFU because yeah. you kind of think you've, it's kind of childish you think you've moved on from that that's what mm. I kind of went through all those years ago we kind of but even then we never really fell out. We, we had our differences, but we we kind of got the job done, but never became personal. And
0: yeah, I mean, we we were sort of set in Formula One. The minute it goes public, it becomes a problem because it's damaging for for all it parties does, yeah. if it if it does. And I guess yeah. I guess that's the issue. Yeah, these are tough
1: guys, and yeah, Bruce Craig is an absolute winner. He's a winner in in business. He's he's he's, he's not going to be pushed around by the RFU already. Um, so mm-hmm. it wasn't the brightest thing to do. And yeah, you know, and and even even now, you know, looking back, you know, Nigel Ray from Saracens. You know, I had some great chats with him at the time, but he, he now sponsors some of my skiers. He's, I've never, I've never fell out these guys. or have got yeah. different opinions, but yeah. I could see it from their point of view. Yeah. And I was just making sure, guys, I am not going to dent a player. Mm-hmm. If we dent a player, it's a real freak. Mm-hmm. It's something, you know. But also, we've got to train and we've got to train properly and we've got to train hard and all this sort of stuff. But I go back to Dave Red, and Dave was brilliant because he was looking in, he was absolutely on top of this, and he was just mm-hmm. coming eyeball me, and we had these. Yeah, sort of grown up conversations and, and the players didn't like me taking out of training like decided I Wilkinson you take a player out of training why are you taking me out of training why are you taking me out of training it doesn't matter I'm taking you out of training and
0: protecting you from yourself yeah, yeah. that's a
1: great line that's what, that's what it kind of was because I just need you fit for Saturday you know yeah. we'll be judged on Saturday not yeah on Wednesday Thursday but if you keep picking up injuries it's going to it's going to escalate this
0: I think it's every fan's worst nightmare to read that their favorite player you know talisman has been injured in training you're like no, oh, no this exactly. can't be happening um I read recently that you didn't approve of the selection of Brad Shields um so for anyone listening he he's he's English but he's got kiwi parents no the other way around he's grown up in New Zealand, but he's got English parents, so he does qualify to play for England. But what, what's your issue with um, Eddie going for him for this tour? It, it was,
1: it was not. It's actually the opposite. My, my view on selecting for England is, is, um, I'm the England coach, which I've been. Um, in my job description, I want to pick anybody who qualifies for England. Doesn't matter where they are from; mm-hmm. they qualify from England. They're able to play. My big issue is, you know, Chris Ashton. Uh for example um is playing down in toulon mm-hmm. uh on on the wing he's not allowed to be picked because he's playing in Toulon, so we've got a guy in New Zealand who's hardly ever been to England, never played in the Premiership. We can't pick him. You try and explain that to the outside person why an English person who's played who's played so many times and to me he should be in the team now, Chris Aston, but he's playing in Toulon, is a short flight away, but we're picking a guy who's never played a single premiership game. So I think it's good Brad Shields is playing to be honest, but I'm saying, you know, because what you don't want is also creating any excuses. You don't want people in the dressing room thinking, well, I'm in the team. Well, would, I, would I be in the team if Chris Ashton was available? Mm-hmm. Would I be in the team if Brad Shields was available? You've got to take that all away. You've got to know every single person, you are the best person who's qualified for England. And that's why I'm picking you mm-hmm. and then not have a whole list of people. Well, I can't pick him and also it gives an excuse for the coach. You don't want to give the coach any get-out-of-jail card. I don't want Jones saying, well, I would have picked him, but I'm not allowed to because the rules between the Premiership and the RFU. So I just think these rules are nonsense. And so it's not a case of being anti-Brad Shields. It's a case of saying, what, what really annoys me is we can't pick Ashton, who plays in France. We can pick a guy who plays in New Zealand. That just just logically is just crazy. And I, I just want to pick English, everyone. I'm the England coach. I've got to, I can pick anyone I like, around the world, no matter, leave it up to me, that's my job.
0: Also, presumably logistics aren't great to come all the way around from New Zealand but then go down to South Africa. You're well, he's sure.
1: coming over, to be fair, he's coming over to play for WAS, You know, he's got, a, he's got a, he's going to go on a tour now. I, I just think it. this looks yeah. wrong. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think we're, we're blessed with a lot of yeah. fit players in that position. So he's got every chance of going straight into the test team against South Africa, which again, I'll just go, got nothing wrong with that. If he's qualified, pick him. I agree with that.
0: But he hasn't bedded in with the players.
1: But that's, up to, that's, up to, yeah. that's the culture you've got to create and that's how you, as a coach, either fits to you or it doesn't fit with you. Um, but you don't want any excuses and say, well, you know, I couldn't pick him because he was you know, playing in Toulon or playing in New Zealand. And that's my point. And, and I, I can't think, well, there wasn't. There wasn't a single player I didn't pick who I'd, I was picking from everyone who's qualified for England in the world, you know, including myself. I was still hoping I could make a comeback one day. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: reminds me of um, Peter Crouch's did you see that on um, Twitter yesterday, no. Peter Crouch did this amazing free kick in his garden and just put, Gareth, I'm still available, I haven't <laughs> booked my holiday yet. <laughs>
1: no, you never retire.
0: Never give up, never no. give up. Um, just to Formula One for a second, if you'll indulge me, I heard that you did come pretty close to working in our great sport i want to know why you not because we would have loved to have had you and uh, yes. and just how kind of realistic was it oh,
1: i was very realistic i um after the world cup uh, ron dennis uh, called me I obviously knew ron dennis was um went down to his amazing offices in woking yeah, wherever you know cool. where mclaren was so i went down to see him and you know just we were an amazing guy showed me all around you know mclaren but i, I and you know, I was wondering why he wanted to see me, really. But but I was, you know, we just won the World Cup, so I could okay, fine. He wanted to talk to me about the whole thing. Then he literally rang me back. He's like, I want you, to, I want to meet you again. I really enjoyed our meeting. Um, I'm going to create a like a performance director role, and um, I'd like you to consider it. I said, what do you mean by performance director? He said, well, literally, you know, we've got all these amazing engineers looking after the car, but I want to take, you know, your your role be, to coach the drivers basically and to get them into prime condition. Blah 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 blah, and I think it would be a great addition to our team. And so I then sent Jane down the see because I thought it was winding me up. So I sent Jane, my wife, down to actually have a chat with him. And he and he and he, you know, he, he was serious, he was a serious, serious job offer to, to actually. This was like January after we were in the World Cup, and um, so January 2004, 2004, yeah, right. uh, whenever anyway, not long after the World Cup, and it was January, February, and um, but it was what we spoke about before. I mean, I love watching Formula One on 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 telly. Am I passionate about Formula One? No, it's not this kind. Of, I don't wake up every day thinking about Formula One and McLaren and Mercedes and Red Bull. I love the sport. I love all sports and I and I think it's a great great sport. But am I passionate about it? No, because I'd I'd be not I'd be doing it for a job and a paycheck as opposed to something I'm passionate about. So That was the only reason. And um, and he actually invited me to. Well, he invited Jane and myself to to Go on his private jet to uh, there was, there was a big race, it was in I think it was in Rio, uh, there's a
0: in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, yeah.
1: And I, we were going to fly on his private jet oh, to Sao Paulo,
0: just gone for that alone. And I no, it was, right. it
1: was what time of year would that have been? So
0: that would have been sort of October, November. Does that sound about right? No, it can't have been because it would have been no, that was a long time it
1: must have been afterwards. But anyway, we're invited down to his, his the, on his plane to go and watch this race season, somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, it might be, it, was, it might be South America somewhere. Anyway, but you know, and I, I and I looked at the and I was like Leicester were playing Bath, and I'm going, <laughs> you know, Leicester really playing Bath bad. He's yeah. just about just about to play trying to pick a team to play for England it was Lester Bivath or something now I'm in, seen in Rio de Janeiro wherever I was or San Paulo with with Ron Dennis it wasn't going to go down too well so I just said no I can't make it I've got Lester Bass to on watch so that was that was the end of my Formula 1 career but he was great I love Ron Dennis and I thought he, another guy who's you know whatever people think about him to me he was what he did when the McLaren then was amazing because yeah. I think Hamilton was with him uh, was yeah, a he very young boy then anyway yeah, yeah. So, all the, so all these young kids were there so no. but it was great you know but yeah we went down to to see ron dennis down there and i'm still close to you know it's it's great because in with the olympic role we did a lot with mclaren technologies Mm. um i've been speaking to toto wolf at uh, mercedes recently about helping us on a a ski project so i just love going down it's just the detail Natalie. i mean you mean if we're brutally honest all professional sports just follow you we kind of hold on to the, the coattails of formula one because their detail is just fantastic and i love all this and the what they go through when you when you go to you know Mercedes and sort of twelve hundred people that sort are of building two cars for two drivers, it's just fantastic, and that's what I think professional sports all about. And that's why it is a great great sport. and I love it, but it's not my kind of passion.
0: So, uh, what is that passion now? Where are you channeling um, all your energy enthusiasm?
1: Yeah, well, the, the main the main the main thing, a couple of business things, but the main thing on sport, we're building this uh, ski academy in in. Uh, the south of France, which again is a great project for me. I've been involved in it for three years now. I've kept it all pretty quiet. But it's an international ski ski academy, so it's not just for British kids; it's for international kids. And we started building it about a year ago. It'll be finished in twenty uh, September twenty nineteen, and it's going to be for about one hundred and twenty young young kids. So it's kind of you know I'll be I've come down a level in terms of age, but I'll be you know I'm I'm the performance director for this ski ski academy, so I'm in charge of the whole ski performance in terms of. Hiring the coaches, putting the whole thing in place, and it's been it's been fantastic. Because a it's um, it's international, uh, working closely with the French, especially. You've been brilliant because this is a serious build. we been building this whole. But the the simple thing is, we want it to be the best ski academy in the world. So we, you know, we think we know what we what we what we're doing. But I want it to be international. I want the class to be full of French kids, British kids, American, Indian, Chinese, and that's where I think the of you know, the real real fun thing about doing this and, and to see whether we can get a someone down the hill faster than anybody else.
0: And so you'll measure that success by Olympic medals?
1: Yeah basically yeah I mean we'll, we'll, yeah, that's why it's a long-term project we're starting off we've got um, 12 kids on the program now as, as we're building physically building this building we've got 12 kids in teens living in a, in a chalet these are currently you know and they're mixed boys and girls 13 14 and we'll you know the program will you know, it's like a ten-year cycle, really, to before we'll see real, real success. But yeah, the the you know, it's not just Olympic games. You know, but can we get you know in all the in all the world events, all the world championships? Can we can we do something special in Olympic skiing? You know, hence again linking it back to you know, I say your sport, Formula One.
0: My sport, yeah. You, it. um, <laughs> you know, it's
1: it's you know, my you know, when I spoke to all the people in Formula One, I just want to get this person down the hill faster and safer than anybody else. Yeah. You know, and the safety is a big, big thing, mm. because and that's why I think you know, Touchwood of Formula One, they've really gone mm. last, massive steps forward mm. in the safety. Mm. And you know, I, I watch these skiers. So I go to these, you know, the Olympic Games and all these World Championships and uh, these amazing ski events. But these, some of the, some of the, some of the crashes, you know, and they're just brave. These mm. kids throw themselves down the mountain, <laughs> but sometimes they just fly off the end, you know, and and they get seriously injured. Mm. So you know part of my role is to can we make them go faster and safer and that's the key thing which I think you can do mm. and we're going to put a huge amount of investment in um, to actually try and make that happen you know so we want to create real elite skiers but we want them down the hill in one piece mm. not not, on, not not otherwise.
0: And so there are processes in Formula 1 that you can learn through Toto that you can apply to this?
1: Well, I'm hoping so yeah we've, we've uh, he's agreed to help us we just say, say process we're just going to Use you know one or two of their engineers to start to work with our coaches and mm. you know one of the first things he told me because he's Austrian, he's a great great guy you know a huge amount of respect for this bloke. Um, but he loves he loves his skiing because he's, he's 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 Austrian. But he said you know Formula One, and I I don't understand Formula One. Um, but he said it's not straight line speed; it's how fast you come out how fast you come out the turns. That's the whole thing. And he said that skiing, you know, it's not a case of you're not going to, you know it's not a straight line speed it's how you fast. And he said so. You know, based on that one fact, to learn. We'll we'll do our best to kind of help you. So he's not. He's, all he's I say all he's doing, but it's for us. It's a great step forward to be able to actually work with somebody who's an engineer in Formula One, mm-hmm. who's you know a proper engineer, who kind of understands skiing. For them to now work with our coaches and just to even our physical contra our physical trainers, you know, what is the right body shape composition in terms of you know how do we train this body to to withstand obviously the equipment. You know, skis on snow is no different than tires on tarmac. You know, but yes it's it's obviously different, but it's not that much different when you think about it. We, 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 it's a speed event. It's, it's safe. It's and lots of turns. And can you come out the turns faster than anybody else? But try and stand your feet. is is a secret to it. So it's a great project for me to be involved in. So I'm really delighted. I've been involved in it for quite a long time now, since it's since its inception. And the the French have been brilliant because the the people in team, the, the French Ski Federation is run by a guy called Michel Villon. These guys have been so supportive of what we're doing because it's international, because, you know, I don't care what who wins a gold medal as long as it's come through our ski academy. If it's a French kid, an American kid, they'll they'll get as big a hug as me as it's a British kid.
0: That's very cool. Very cool indeed. Right. Just to bring it back to you to finish on um, the series of questions, just to delve a bit deeper into understanding what goes on be- between the years with you. Um, Advice that you'd give to your younger self?
1: Advice I'd give to my younger self, um, just I I wish I'd um, uh, written a lot more things down in terms of, yeah, I've been exposed to amazing um, coaching, especially in in rugby and all sports, but most of it's kind of, you know, at the time I never wrote it all down. And I would say that to to my younger self, I've said to people now, I've said to every young athlete, Write it down. Write it down. Study it. Study it. Study it. Don't lose this, because you know some of these um, thoughts and ideas from these brilliant people. You know, you can't remember it all, so write it all down. Somehow keep it. So I wish I just kept a lot more information, and you know, because I, I was very lucky. certainly in rugby, I you know, one one you know, had three great coaches. One one you know, Jim Greenwood, Chalky White, and a guy called Earl Curtin was my first coach at Harlequins at eighteen. He was my first proper coach, and he was an All Black dentist but just a great great coach and where's this kid come from you know but he he showed me so much about what he did I just wish I'd written it all down and kept it all that's
0: cool and um, defining moments I mean the easy one I suppose would be winning the world cup but but was there something else that you think was a bit of a sliding doors moment for you in terms of rugby well in terms of life
1: oh I just I've had lots of um, I say to my kids Natalie I've never I've never planned my career and I can generally say that I've I've never ever said this is this is the plan. My career's sort of gone in eight, nine year cycles, things have happened. This sliding door, whatever you you call it. Um things have happened. Like even the game going professional, I never saw that. Mm. Just went professional. Literally within weeks I've been offered the first full time rugby job and I'm running a successful business and so do you do it, do you not do it, do you take the risk? All all those things happen, you know, um, London winning the Olympic Games through, you know, Seb Co and, and these, these amazing people. Then I get offered the job as director of sport for Team GB. So things have just happened. And I've been either lucky enough or kind of astute enough to make the right, the right calls. During those eight, nine-year peers, I've done some really crazy things that I probably shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have done. But the actual key changes, looking back, I think I'm quite pleased that I've, I didn't kind of bottle the, the chance of doing something. Where maybe the easier option was not to do something. Where I've, mm. I've I've done it and made the right the right the right calls.
0: Mm. And my final question: What keeps you awake at night?
1: What keeps you awake at night? Probably I've I've got this thing at the moment which is is on is on golf. I've kind of um, it's the one sport I can still play, and I've now decided to take it seriously. So i um, I kind of you know been coached properly, writing it all down. My handicap's down to six. And it's coming impressive. and coming down, yeah. Well, I'm trying to get it down lower, so that's what keeps me. low. Cause I can, I can, 'cause I'm now to a fort, writing everything down, you know. And I have this thing about what I call uh, winning moves and winning. The winning moves are just sort of the key coaching points. And I think in a game like a game like a sport like golf, uh, amateurs like me, we you you don't we don't, it's not being taught properly, we we don't learn the technical side of golf really as much as we should do. And I listen to the golf commentators on TV and they talk about flair and all this stuff. I am I disagree with that totally and utterly. It's nothing to do with flair. Golf is to do with... Absolute, it's one sport that's totally technique. You know. And if you can get your technique right as an amateur player, you'll be fine. And all these world's best players, the Roy McElroys, they've been through that as kids. They've learnt the technique. So then when they're their age, you can talk about flair and all this stuff. But when you're an amateur... Unless you get set up properly to the ball and get your basics right, you're late. Well, you've got no chance. So it's understanding and relearning really these things. So I, I generally every shot I can think of, from, and why golf's so great, you have you know from a driver to a putter, the techniques are complete light years away. But can you? What, what are your what are your winning moves? What are the six key things? If you do those six key things right, you'll putt fine. If you do those six key things right, you'll hit the ball drop, driver fine. And there's no logical reason in golf why you can't hit the ball down the middle because the ball stood still. It's not moving, so you've got to hit it in a straight line. So my logic is is this should be possible. So I'm really trying to put a huge amount of emphasis on my on my on my golf game, and and the great thing about it is that even that creates great pressure because you can't hide, you can't I can't bullshit anyone about how good a golfer I'm or not because you can watch me play, you know, and you can't you can't bullshit your uh, can I say that word? Sorry, you, you can't you, you can't whatever your handicap because that that's the game. But my my handicap's coming down working with a great coach called Dan Grieve who's the head coach at Woburn and you know we're getting quite excited about it and I want to just prove by using a process and a method that's not a lot different from where I coach the rugby team that you can do it in a, in a sport like golf which is one of the most pressurized games mm. you can think of because even getting on that first tee with your mates on a Saturday morning your heart starts fluttering a bit <laughs> because somebody, somebody wants to see you fail and um, you can't hide from it. And but I, I think there's a different way of teaching it for, for for amateurs like me who generally want to get better at a, at a sport. You've got to be able to practice it a bit, but you've got to you've got to know what you're practicing. That's what I'm trying to say. So that generally does. I, I lie awake now. Can I rehearse? Can I think about what the, what these <laughs> points are? Quite sad, really.
0: <laughs> Do you know, all I can say is poor Jane. <laughs> poor Jane.
1: No. Yes, poor Jane. So <laughs> she's kind of used to she's had it for me a long time, so yeah. she's used to it. So.
0: Great stuff. Right, I'm going to go and give uh, Sally and Ronnie some food. They've been lovely company. They're both asleep now. They're very calm. <laughs> Clive, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. I hope your equipment's worth this time. So do I,
0: bloody hell. <laughs> Could be the third time back. <laughs>